Today's uh, passage is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my brothers, excuse me, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Hey, um, it's great to see you all here this morning. Before we dive in, would you just pray with me? Just bow your heads and, and uh, let's pray. Um, Father, we just recognize that this morning we, we need you if we're going to understand uh, what is here in this text, uh, that your Holy Spirit is here among us and will uh, open up our, our eyes, prepare our ears and our hearts to receive your word. So we, um, we, we confess today, Lord, that we need you. We hope for you um, to help us to understand this passage and to trust in you deeper. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, if you've got a Bible with you, why don't you go ahead and uh, turn or toggle over to Matthew chapter 12, and we're actually going to start in verse 22, Matthew 12, verse 22, which if you're using one of our community Bibles is on page 817, it'll give you a little head start. And while you're on your way over there, I want to talk about a, a debate that took place last October. Now, it's probably not a debate you heard much about because it wasn't a debate in the Republican Party or in the Democratic Party. It wasn't a bunch of people trying to become a presidential nominee or anything like that. Uh, it, was, it wasn't very well covered at the time, but it was an important debate for us to think about today. On the one side of this debate was the debate team from Harvard University. Now, when you think Harvard University, you're probably thinking words like brilliant, comma, expensive. And this team... This, this debate team is an incredible debate team. I mean, they've got the whole debate thing down at Harvard University. So that's on the one side. On the other side is the debate team from the Eastern New York Correctional Facility, which is a maximum security prison, and as you can guess, houses some pretty serious criminals. So the topic for this debate had to do with public schools, and they, they went at it for an hour, and as the hour drew to a close, and as the closing arguments came about, the unthinkable became clear. The team from the Eastern New York Correctional Facility had won handily over Harvard University. Now, right or wrong, if you're, the t if you're on that team from Harvard University, you gotta believe, I mean, this has got to be an incredibly an embarrassing thing. Right? In the last two years prior, 2014 and 2015, the team at Harvard University were the national champions in the debate world. I had them in the final four. I didn't have them all the way in the championship, so that was kind of embarrassing for me. They won the championship two years in a row. This is the premier debate team in the college world, and here they are losing at the Eastern New York Correctional Facility. How embarrassing. I looked this morning, I Googled Harvard debate team. And of the 10 uh, responses I got to that search query, nine of them had something to do with Harvard losing to this team. Everybody knows about it now. And if you're on that team, that Harvard University debate team that lost this debate, this is going to follow you around, isn't it? Because there's something about public debate. It's not just about winning or losing. When you, when you lose a public debate, that, that carries with you, doesn't it? Think of it this way. 
The last time that you had an argument in your head, you finally shouted down the coworker or supervisor that you just can't stand or that friend that you just can't stand and think you did it in front of an audience, didn't you? In your head. Because when that person was left in a pile of their own tears under the crushing weight of your logic, that audience lifted you up on their shoulders and chanted your name as they carried you out of that room, didn't they? Because when you beat a person in a public debate, you've defeated them, not just their argument. And this is a tool, this is a tactic that has been around for centuries. In fact, there was a time when political leaders religious leaders, politicians, the best way they could consolidate power was by winning a public debate. And at the same time, if there was one thing that could absolutely shatter their career, it would be losing a public debate. So that when the Pharisees let the end of last week's passage came together to conspire against Jesus, how to destroy him, they weren't really talking about killing him just yet. Killing him is messy, there's a body to hide. If they can just beat him in a public debate, if they can just convince all the crowds that are following him that he has no credibility, that he's not who he says he is, that he's not gonna do what he says he's come to do, he is not worth following, then the job will be done. And so the passage we're gonna look at today is just one of those debates. One of those opportunities for the Pharisees to show the crowds that Jesus is not who he says he is. And so today as we go through this passage, I want to invite you to think of yourself as a member of the crowd who's watching this public debate. I want you to sit here in your seats and imagine that you're watching Jesus go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Pharisees in this debate, in this argument that the Pharisees pick. And I want you to ask yourself this question, is Jesus worth following? Is Jesus worth following? And the reason I want you to ask yourself this question is because this is the question the Pharisees want to answer for you. They want to convince you that the answer is no, Jesus is not worth following. Now, I know that this is kind of like a churchy question to ask a little bit, and that a lot of us in here have probably already said, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But I still want you to ask yourself this question because if you're anything like me, I'm guessing that there's a little part of your heart somewhere that you're kind of holding back a little bit kind of a part of your life somewhere that you're not so sure you want to give over to Jesus. So with that in mind, I want us to listen into this debate together and ask ourselves the question, is Jesus worth following? Okay? Okay, let's dive into the text. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus, and he, Jesus, healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now, if you've been around with us for a while, we've been walking through Matthew nice and slow, you know that this term son of David is a technical term. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has a promise made to him by God that he's going to have a son sometime down his line who's going to sit on his throne forever. And right now, there's not a person in the line of David sitting on the throne in Israel when this story is taking place. So the people are, are looking and wondering when this son of David might come, and they're asking themselves the question, could this man, Jesus, be the rightful king of Israel? Now, the last thing in the world the Pharisees need 
is a crowd running around thinking Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. Because that's the kind of stuff that starts riots and rebellions. And rioters and rebels and anybody within a five square mile radius, it doesn't end well when Rome comes down on them. So this is the opportunity for the Pharisees to step in and engage Jesus in a debate to try to prove to all these people, to this crowd, that Jesus is not worth following. He is not the son of David. And so let's look and see how they start. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, heard this question, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. In other words, he is drawing from a demonic evil power to do this work that he's doing. Okay? Now, if that's true, Jesus is not worth following, right? So if they can convince the crowds that Jesus is drawing from this evil demonic power, they will have accomplished their work. But Jesus is going to respond to that. Verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And then listen to this. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Drop the mic and walk away. (laughs) Therefore, they will be your judges, but... If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Look at this terrific corner Jesus has put the Pharisees in. Either, yes, Pharisees, you're right, I cast out demons by the power of demons, and so therefore do your sons. Pharisees are probably not going to admit to that in public. Or, I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, which means the kingdom of God has come. And I am who I say I am. And I am the rightful king of God's people. And I am worth following. And that's really kind of the center of this whole debate. Jesus is using these signs and wonders not to prop himself up as some sort of miracle worker. Not to gain power over against the Pharisees or Rome or whomever else. He's using these miracles to show us that the kingdom of God has come. That Jesus is here to offer freedom to the oppressed and healing to the sick. And a new day has come. The rightful king of Israel is here. Now for Jesus, he's not so concerned with just winning this debate to show himself as more powerful than the Pharisees because there's a crowd watching, which means there are hearts on the line. And so he keeps, he keeps his foot on the gas. Chapter, or verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. As this rightful king of Israel, Jesus has come back to bind Satan. He's not casting out Satan by the power of demons, but he's binding him in order to steal back the hearts that Satan stole from him in the first place. That's what Jesus has come to do. That's what he's doing by the power of the Spirit. And those who stand Opposed to him are those who will not join that work with him. But still he keeps the pedal down. Verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, 
But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, I want to camp here for just a minute and talk about this whole blasphemy against the Spirit thing. Um, if you've heard this passage speak before, this, this uh, spoken on before, or this topic spoken on before, uh, you've probably heard one of a wide variety of interpretations of what exactly is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the sin that is unforgivable. And there may even be some folks in here who are legitimately trying to follow Jesus, who are worried that sometime back in their past, they accidentally committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and all their efforts to follow Jesus will mean nothing in the age to come. So let's talk about this for a second. The context in our passage is very, very clear exactly what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. See, Jesus has come to cast out these demons and to bring the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees have said that that power is actually a demonic power, the one from which Jesus is working. And so the first part of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to take what God is doing and attribute it to something evil. But it's more than just that. The Pharisees aren't just doing that because they misunderstand Jesus, because they have a wrong thought pattern in their mind. They're doing it because they have a motive in their heart, which is to draw people away from Jesus, which is to say to keep them bound captive in Satan's house that Jesus has come to plunder. So it's this intention to draw people away from Jesus, to self-identify as an enemy of God that is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But it's more than even just that. Because there may be people in here who at one point in their life would have found themselves opposed to the mission of God and would have actively been pulling people away from Jesus and maybe since then have come to see Jesus and have been saved and are wondering now, is my salvation legitimate? Am I really forgiven? Well, to that I'd say we have to remember about the Apostle Paul, who's one of the most prolific church planners, most prolific evangelists of all time, wrote a third of the New Testament. But he didn't come on the pages of history as this great evangelist, church planter, New Testament writer. He came on the pages of history as one of the strongest enemies of the church. He went into houses where known Christians lived and dragged them out into the street and publicly humiliated them, persecuted them, with the goal that people would not follow Jesus. Until one day on the road to go do more of the same, Paul encountered Jesus, and everything about him changed. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or against the Holy Spirit, can be defined this way. It is a lifelong pursuit opposed to the kingdom of God. It's a lifelong pursuit opposed to the kingdom of God. Those who live their entire lives and are hardened in their practice of trying to draw people away from Jesus and who die in this posture will find no forgiveness because they've called themselves enemies of God. Now, if you're in here this morning trying to follow Jesus and worried that sometime in your life you accidentally committed a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and will never be forgiven. Look up here. I want you to find rest from that. I want the word of God to show you that you can be at peace, that all who call in the name of Jesus for salvation will be forgiven, no matter what's in your past. It is only those like the Pharisees are in danger of becoming, who spend their entire life opposed to the mission of God, who will find no forgiveness either in this life or the life to come. 
So we begin to understand why Jesus has put so much pressure on them in this debate. Because it's not just about winning a debate for him. Because there's a crowd watching, and in that crowd are hearts who might follow Jesus or might not. And might find themselves in the same destruction the Pharisees are headed toward. This is the great irony here. This is almost hilarious to think about. The Pharisees have charged Jesus with working out of a demonic power when the reality is Jesus has just shown us that the Pharisees are the ones drawing from a demonic power because they are opposed to the work of God. So Jesus continues on, keeps the pressure on the Pharisees. Look at what he says in verse 33. Either make a tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Here's what Jesus is saying here to these Pharisees. These words that have come out of your mouth are evidence, are proof of what's going on in your heart, which is that your heart is full of evil as you stand opposed to the mission of God. There's something qualitatively wrong about the Pharisees that needs to be changed from the inside. They need a new heart, a heart that would naturally proclaim the goodness of the kingdom of God as opposed to naturally stand opposed to it. Now, as a member of this crowd watching on, I know Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, but I got to wonder if kind of like a ripple of anxiety goes out among the crowd when he says this. Every careless word. Every careless word. In the multiple times I read this passage this week preparing for this sermon, that, that phrase cut right through me every time. And it leaves me asking the question, what do, what do my careless words reveal about my heart? And I got to think every person in this, in this crowd is thinking the same thing. Every careless word on the day of judgment. Those words that slip out when I think no one's listening or when I haven't uh, gotten my nap or eaten enough that day and things that I can't just get back now that I want back. Reveal what's going on in my heart. I can tell you what is revealed about my heart. What's revealed about my heart is that I am self-interested and self-centered and arrogant and my careless words prove this, prove that there's something qualitatively wrong with me. And I need someone not to come and staple a bunch of good fruit on my mouth, but to change my heart and to make me the kind of person who would naturally speak the words that proclaim God's glory and his kingdom and the good news. And you need that too. We've come a long way from this whole he casts out demons by the demonic thing, haven't we? And if I'm the Pharisees at this point, the crowd wrenches their attention back to the debate which is still going on. I'm probably thinking, you know what? I'm going to go sit in my bathtub and cry for a little while. I'm going to lick my wounds. I'm going to gather myself back together. I'm going to hide from the public eye for about a week or 10 days. And then I'm going to come back and maybe try again if I'm bold. But these Pharisees... <laughs> 
are much more stubborn than that. Apparently, they think they can recover from this whole thing where Jesus has proven, no, actually, you're the ones who are operating out of the demonic. And so they dive right back in, in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, this is an absurd request. Because what started this whole debate? A sign. Jesus casts out of a, de- a demon out of a man who can't talk or hear, and now he can talk or hear. So that's, we would call that a sign, I think, that Jesus is who he says he is. But the Pharisees are saying, no, we need a sign. Now, of course, the last thing they're asking for is actually a sign to actually be convinced that Jesus is the one uh, he says he is. I can remember a time... Um, it was over a lunch hour, and I was in the middle of a debate myself. It had something to do with whose dad could beat up the other person's dad. And in the midst of this debate, I proclaimed a careless word that I could do 100 push-ups in a row. That was going to be like my closing argument, right? So the person I'm debating with says, what? Prove it. Now, they didn't actually expect me to prove to them that I could do 100 push-ups in a row. That's absurd. They just wanted me to be humiliated publicly in me not being able to back up what I said I could do. And when I came about 98 push-ups short of my goal, (laughs) I turned to Gabe and said, that's really mean of you, ran upstairs and finished writing this sermon. (laughs) See, the Pharisees right here, they have no intention of actually seeing a sign from Jesus. They just want to see him proved wrong. They just want the whole crowd to say, no, he's not worth following. They're not actually looking for a sign. And Jesus knows that which is why he responds the way that he does in verse 39. But he, Jesus, answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now listen to what he describes that as. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus' title for himself, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's what Jesus is saying. Look, I can cast out all the demons, heal all the sick, raise all the dead, but there's only one sign that matters. There's only one thing that you must respond to, and it trumps all these other signs. And it is that, I, Jesus, I'm going to die, and three days after that, I'm going to walk up out of my grave alive again. And when you see that sign, the resurrected Jesus, that puts everything else in perspective. And you must now contend with the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the Messiah, the rightful king of Israel, that he has come to do what he said he would do, and that he is worth following. And if you won't respond to that sign, there's really nothing else Jesus can do for you. Now, He dives in even further to this language of the sign to describe how we ought to respond to him. And that's in verse 41. He says this, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they, what's the word? Repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He goes on, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is what Jesus is saying. Back in Jonah chapter 4, you can see the story of Jonah after the whole belly of the fish thing, finally going and doing what God asked him to do, to proclaim that the men of Nineveh need to repent of their sin, and they actually do. They actually turn away 
from their lives of sin. And that's just Jonah's preaching. I mean, like, he's not even one of the good prophets. <laughs> and then in 1 Kings chapter 10, you can see the story of the queen of this land of Sheba who hears that God's wisdom has been made manifest in this man, Solomon. And she comes from the ends of the earth, the text says, to come and behold the wisdom of God. And that's just, that's just Solomon. Here's Jesus who's not just speaking the words of God, but is the very word of God himself. Who's not just speaking the wisdom of God, but is God himself in the flesh, standing eye to eye with these Pharisees. How will they respond? How will they respond to the fact that the king of Israel is here? That he is worth following? You know, when they actually do see this sign, the Pharisees, that Jesus is alive, they see an empty tomb, what do they do? Do they repent and come from the ends of their sinless life to follow Jesus? No. They spread another lie about Jesus. Now his body was stolen. He's not actually alive. He was never worth following. He's not who he claimed to be. And by doing that, Jesus says, they're in a worse shape than if they had ever met Jesus in the first place. Look with me at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, this is an illustration, by the way, when the unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And here's the key. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Look, as the king Jesus has come to clean up the house of his people, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to bring justice to the oppressed, but if these people will not respond to Jesus and follow him, will not believe that Jesus is worth following, even after they've encountered all of this, even after they've encountered him resurrected after he died very publicly three days before, their last state is worse than, they, than if they had never met Jesus in the first place. You see, there's a great lie that following Jesus will become easier at some point in our lives. That given the right blend of circumstances, it'll become easier to follow Jesus. And that's not just making the initial decision to follow him, but with those kind of corners, back corners of our heart or our mind that we hold back from him, that we don't trust him with now. We believe that there will be a day where it will be easier to give those things over to him than this day right now. We say things like, oh, it'll be much, much easier to forgive that person once they've suffered a little bit more. We say things like, it'll be much, much easier for me to go and serve my neighbor once they really understand just how much I'm sacrificing to serve them. We say things like, it'll be easier for me to be more generous once my financial situation changes a little bit, once I start to make a little bit more money or get this stuff paid off. We believe the lie that there will be a day other than today when following Jesus will be easier. But what Jesus is saying here could not be more opposite than that. 
that every single time we encounter Jesus, we have the opportunity to turn our whole heart over to him and follow him fully. And every time we encounter Jesus and we don't make that choice, it becomes more and more difficult to follow him. So whatever it is in your life this morning, as you ask this question, is Jesus worth following, that you might be holding back from him, hear me, hear the text. There is no day easier than today for you to give that to Jesus. And I'm not just saying that because it's like a new agey, like, oh, you know, live in the present, everything's good right now, don't think about the future. I'm saying you will be hardened in your withholding this part from Jesus the longer you withhold it from him. That's what the Pharisees are in danger of, the longer they remain opposed to Jesus. So we ought to be asking ourselves the question right now, what is that part of my heart or my mind or my soul that I'm withholding from Jesus And I believe our text gives us a really practical way to discover that. So I'm going to point that out to us, and then we'll wrap this time up. Here it is. Follow your careless words. Follow your careless words. Those words that after you utter them, you're kind of like, no, no, come back, come back, come back, but you can't get them. Those thoughts that are going on in the back of your mind, maybe you have a better filter than I do, so you keep them in your mind instead of saying them, but they're still in your mind. And man, if we put them up up on this screen back here, that'd be embarrassing. Follow your careless words because your careless words are big old signposts saying the brokenness is that way. The sin is that way. The thing that this person is withholding from Jesus is that way. Follow your careless words. And I mean this very practically. I mean this week when you utter a careless word, whether it be um, getting cut off in traffic, that's where almost all my careless words come out. Whatever it might be, at work, at home, however you might, wherever is the place you might utter your careless words, actually write them down, physically write them down. Whether it's like the old-fashioned way on a piece of paper or you're going to type them down in your phone and then take some time later that day or the next day, just maybe 10 or 15 minutes and sit down with those words and pray that God will show you to that area of your heart that you're withholding from him because he will show it to you. Because he wants you and everybody in this crowd watching this debate to follow him. He's really going to help you in that task. So take your careless words to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me understand what part of my heart or my mind or my soul or my body that I'm withholding from you. And then, listen, here's the key. When you discover it, get ruthless about giving it up. Because there is no other moment other than right now where it will be this easy to follow Jesus. That's what he wants this whole crowd to understand. That's what he wants us to understand. That's why he preserved this story for us, so that we will believe that he is worth following and give ourselves over to him. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my, he replied to the man who had told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my sister, is my brother and my sister and my mother. Look, the will of the father in heaven is that you would follow Jesus. And here's why you ought to follow him. Because he's not just trying to get subjects in a kingdom. 
He's not just trying to get votes in the final tally in a debate. He's not worth following just because he can stand toe-to-toe with learned people and shout them down in a debate. He's worth following because if you will turn and follow him, he's going to invite you into his family. He's going to make you his brother or his sister. Because out of the abundance of the grace and love that he has for you, while you were still dead in your sins and an enemy to God's cause, Jesus came down to this earth to pay the price for that sin, to live the life that the Father desires we live for us. And then, to prove that he is who he says he is, he comes back to life three days after dying into a perfect eternal life that he offers everyone who follows him. So is Jesus worth following? I mean, with your whole heart? Is Jesus worth giving up those things in this world that we cling to because they're nice and warm and comfortable and make us feel good? Because in the end, we must respond to this sign. Repent and follow or be hardened as we resist God. You know, every single week here at the downtown campus, we come together um, and participate in a meal, a meal that Jesus gave his followers before he went to die and then three days later rise again. And the reason that we do this every single week is because it reminds us exactly the lengths Jesus went to in order to bring us into his family, in order to allow us to follow him. You see, when he breaks the bread and passes it around, it reminds us of his body, which was broken in the place of our body. And when, he, dips, when uh, he passes around the juice, when we dip in the juice, we remember the blood he shed to wash us clean of our sins once and for all. So here's the deal. If at some point in your life, or maybe even today for the first time, you've decided that Jesus is worth following, that you want to follow Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table. You'll stand, come to our center aisle, and then circle around the back to one of our two communion serving stations. I should have been a flight attendant. You'll gather in groups of four to six, Take a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and partake together as a group. If you've got a child with you who has yet to decide that Jesus is worth following, they're welcome to come to the table. Our servers would love to offer a blessing over them. And if you're here this morning and you have not decided yet that Jesus is worth following, I, I first of all, am so thankful that you're here. And I want to invite you to take this time to think on, to meditate on what you have heard, and even pray that God would show you that Jesus is worth following. And begin to take a step towards him. But wherever you're at today, before we come to the table, I want to pray over us so that this message we heard today will sink deep in our hearts. So let's pray together. Our Father, we, we desire to faithfully follow you. We believe that your son is who he says he is that he is the king, the Messiah, the anointed one whom you have sent to save your people. But Lord, we are frail, sinful, broken people. And we are in desperate need of your help. And so Lord, as we come together at your table this morning, we ask that our faith would be built up that our affections would be stirred for you and that we would leave here 
more deeply committed to following you. These things we pray in the name of your Son, who is our only hope. Amen.